0: My name is Martin Antoon. I am the campus minister with RUF at Savannah College of Art and Design. If you're not familiar with RUF, it is simply the college ministry of our denomination, um, of our presbytery, which means by extension of this church. And if you ever find yourself thinking, you know, we've got this art school in our backyard in Savannah, Georgia, uh, and wishing that our church could in some way minister to them and reach them, Just know that by extension of this church being in the Savannah River Presbytery, that's exactly what is happening. We are your college ministry, uh, and we're grateful to be able to represent you um, for the 15,000 students from all over the world that come into Savannah to learn their craft and to go back out into the world. So it's a joy and a privilege to minister on behalf of you guys, but it's also a joy and a privilege to be here with you this morning. Um, If you would turn to Acts chapter 9, That's the text we're going to be in this morning. We're going to look at verses 1 through 23. Um, And as you're turning there, um, before my wife and I, my wife Elizabeth, who's over here, um, moved to Savannah, Georgia five years ago, we were both from Jackson, Mississippi, which is where both of us spent most of our childhood and most of our lives. But actually before that, I was born in the small town of Greenwood, Mississippi, um, where I spent the first eight years of my life, and and as is the case with most small towns, there's not a lot that really happens in Greenwood, so things that might not really be super exciting in other contexts tend to become really exciting when they happen in Greenwood. There's one particular day that my family, which is me and my twin brother and uh, our parents, were going about any uh, any, like we would, any normal day, and... All of a sudden, my dad comes across somebody who needs help. This guy has locked himself out of his hotel room. You gotta remember, this is pre-cell phone, so uh, inevitably it's a little harder to figure out how to do things maybe in an unfamiliar town or something to this extent. So he recruits my dad to help him figure it out. How can we go find the front desk? How can we track somebody down to replace my key to get back into the room? Which of course, my dad gladly obliges and he helps this guy and he's able to get back into his room. And at this point, my dad asks a favor of this guy he's just helped. He said, "Uh, would you mind coming to take a picture with my family? And at this point, you're thinking this must be a miserably boring talent if this is the pinnacle of excitement with which a picture is uh, necessitated. And you would probably be right if it weren't for the fact of who this person that we would take a picture uh, with was. Uh, Academy Award winning Screen Actors Guild Award winning Golden Globe winning actor Denzel Washington who takes a picture in sleepy Greenwood Mississippi with uh, my family which is a wonderfully quaint small-town story Um, except the only thing is I don't remember this at all because my mom was still pregnant with me and my twin brother Ferris and we would not enter into the world uh, for a few more months and even though I was there even though I was directly in front of greatness I could not even recognize what was before me. And if this is true and somewhat tragic of somebody like Denzel Washington, how much more true must that be when we consider Jesus, um, the the person, the divine Son of God, Jesus himself. For all the, the talking and thinking that we do of the character of Jesus and what's true of him, would we even know it if we encountered him? What would that encounter be like? What would we expect to have happened? Would we even know Jesus if he was before us? This morning we look at a text where that is the exact type of thing that happens. It's the encounter that Saul has with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And we look at this text not because it is the expectation of the methodology that Jesus would meet with us. In other words, this is not the means through which we would expect Jesus to meet with us in this appearance. But what we, we can figure is The response that we see in Saul, the things that would be true of this type of encounter, would be things that we would expect to be true if we've encountered Jesus ourselves. Would we know it if we saw him? So we're going to look this morning at a text where we see what it means to truly encounter King Jesus so that we would not suffer the tragic fate of missing him. We're going to look to God's word. Before we do that, let me pray and ask him to help us as we read and consider his word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful that you have spoken to us. Uh, these are not my words. These are not just the words of any man, but these are your words. And we are dependent on you this morning to do the miraculous, to use these active and alive words, to take dead hearts and make them alive, to sanctify and purify us. We ask that you would use your word by your spirit to this end. That in this divine appointment that you have set apart for us this morning, you would do real work in our hearts. That we would see Jesus with clarity. Uh, that you would restore us. And that it would be for our good and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look at Acts chapter 9. Just to set a little bit of the context for this. Um, you don't have to turn back. I'm going to read the end of Acts 7 into the beginning of chapter 8. And then we'll read Acts 9. So this is from Acts 7 starting in Verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him, him meaning Stephen. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. Then in Acts chapter 9, we'll read verses 1 through 23. 23. And he said, "I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and ye will be told what you are to do." The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for 3 days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Amen. This is God's word to us this morning. So three things that this text shows us an encounter with Jesus is. An encounter with Jesus is overwhelming. An encounter with Jesus is transformational. An encounter with Jesus is loving. So an encounter with Jesus is overwhelming, transformational, and loving. So first... An encounter with Jesus is overwhelming. You've probably found yourself in a situation before like this where somebody is recruiting your help to find something that's maybe fallen behind the couch, and they recruit you to kind of get down and and look behind the couch, and they hold the flashlight there, and maybe you look back and say something to them, like you need more light over here. And when you do, and they turn and look at you, inevitably what they also, for whatever reason, tend to do is turn with the light that shines right into your eyes and there's a universal response to this type of thing. We all do the same thing. You, you kind of recoil back and you put your hands up and kind of squint your eyes a little bit. And maybe if you're like me, have a somewhat irrational response that's probably a little bit too angry. But I would be willing to bet you have never experienced a light that is so majestic. You didn't just do this, but you fell down to the ground. Which is exactly the type of light that Saul just experiences here on the road to Damascus. Not only this But he can't see for three days. And he has no appetite and doesn't drink anything for three days. But what's interesting about this light, it's not like this light is just a spotlight shining on Jesus. This light actually is Jesus himself in his resurrected glorified body that is so overwhelming simply to be in the presence of him does something like this to Saul. You know, often, I think this is a, a Christian and a non-Christian thing. Whenever we consider Jesus, whenever we think about Jesus, whenever we talk about Jesus, we have this tendency to do these things on our terms. For Christians, what this can often look like, even in a, in a well-intended posture of belief, we begin to describe and think about a Jesus who we want to do things like orient life to the expectations that we have. We want him to remove the unpleasantries. We want him to make life easier. We want a Jesus who just so happens to agree with all of the, the political or social thoughts that I have. We want a Jesus who is on my side anytime I have a disagreement with anybody else. We want a Jesus who operates on our terms. For some of us, Even in our skepticism towards Jesus, what we're doing is constructing the type of Jesus who looks a lot like us. We say and think things like, you know, I like to think that if Jesus were here today, he probably would say this. Or he probably wouldn't do that. But can we recognize in this moment the last thing as Saul falls to the ground unable to see, the last thing that he is probably thinking is how can I get this Jesus to, co- to cohere his plans to my expectation? To be in the presence of Jesus is overwhelming. I wonder the last time, think about this, the last time you have really been awestruck by something. This past week we took students to RUF summer conference uh, on the Gulf in Panama City Beach. We actually just got back last night and it was an incredible week of hearing some of the, the best preaching from Albert McGowan that you might hear in the PCA, seminars from dozens of different campus ministers and campus staff on a host of different topics, some of the the greatest teaching that you'll hear in one concentrated place. It was an incredible week of, of considering the gospel with students. And there's something about a context like this where you're at the beach that's just conducive to this type of thing. And there are these moments, if you've been to really any beach, you've been to Tybee, where... You look out um, into the vastness of the ocean and the sky, especially if the sun is setting and this enormous ball of fire in the sky that's illuminating the sky and this palette of colors as it's joining with the expanse of the ocean, that for all of the technological advancements we've been able to achieve, they still pale in comparison. And this awe-inspiring image, you really can't stop looking at it. It's the kind of thing that I think C.S. Lewis had in mind when he says, it's not just that we want to see beauty, we want to be united with beauty. And if we have these types of awe-inspiring moments when we look at something like that, how much more awe-inspiring, how much more overwhelming must the God who made those things be? But the other thing that's going on here when Saul hits the deck, it's not just an awareness of who Jesus is that does this to him. It's also an awareness of who he is himself. In other words, simultaneously, as he's seeing the goodness of Jesus, he's seeing the badness of himself. As he's seeing the holiness and glory of Jesus, he is recognizing the sinfulness of himself. And what Jesus says here is so fascinating. He doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? Which he, of course, is doing. But he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In other words, Saul is having this horrible recognition dawning on him that, that the direction of his life, the things that he's been doing, his stance towards the church and its people is not just an affront to those people, but it's actually an affront to God himself. He's made himself an enemy with the Jesus who now stands right in front of him in all of his resurrected glory. And this type of response is not novel to Saul. When you consider moments across the course of the narrative of Scripture, this is actually a very common response, isn't it? Think about Moses when he encounters the burning bush. What does he do? says he looks away because he's afraid to look upon the glory of God in it. What about the prophet Isaiah when he enters this heavenly courtroom and sees the glory of God in and, and all of his beauty and majesty? What, what's the first thing he says? He says, woe is me because I am a man of unclean lips. When you see this overwhelmingness of the goodness of Jesus, there is no other option but to simultaneously see your own ineptitude and your own inadequacy which really forces us to ask a question, doesn't it? Have you been overwhelmed by Jesus? Both in his goodness, but also in our badness. And, and part of what we've got to say, if, if what we're saying is this is not the normative methodology by which Jesus will appear to us, what that means is the question is still there, but it might look different for us. Because a number of us, can remember a moment where this type of Saul on the road to Damascus instance has happened. And we can remember, I mean, the instant where all of this became clear and this overwhelming sense that we're describing happened in a moment. But for some of us, it might look a little different. Especially if you've grown up in the church. Especially if maybe your process or progress as a follower of Jesus um, is maybe stretched out on a longer timeline. Uh, I got a new hobby about three years ago, which admittedly is a really nerdy hobby. I will grant you this. Um, I started planting corn in our backyard, which I recognize is not the weirdest thing to do in Georgia, and that might be true, except this is imported heirloom corn that I started planting. And the reason I did this is because I had a deepening love and appreciation for true, authentic Mexican food. And the process of corn planted to nixtamalization to grinding to tortilla to me is an endlessly fascinating thing but something started to happen when I planted this corn and watched it grow because you know each day you go outside if you've ever planted anything in your life you've you've experienced this you go outside and you do the things that you have to do to tend to it you water it you pull the weeds from it you see if any animals have gotten into it that would result in something to try to keep them out and each day you go outside and you never really think wow the corn's gotten big today It's this incremental growth that really you don't notice day in and day out, but suddenly three, four months later as you're eating a taco with a homemade tortilla on the plate, you recognize, you know, a lot happened from four months ago for this thing to grow and become useful. And suddenly there is a new dimension of the way that Jesus often teaches that really began to land on me. Why is it that Jesus so often uses parables and teaching tools that have to do with growth and agriculture and plants? the tree and the vine, Um, the, the seed that's planted in the good soil, the mustard seed. Why does he do this kind of thing? What is it that these require? They require patience, don't they? They require observation. They require time. And you might not be sitting here, and as we read this text, feel this type of sense of being super overwhelmed in the same way that Saul perhaps did. But what happens if you reflect back on maybe the last year of your life, two years of your life, decade, maybe even the entire course of your life, and you see the types of instances where in retrospect you have the clarity to now see the way that God was working in your life in a way that might not have even been aware to you at the time, maybe taking the suffering that you wished more than anything else was not true and using it to strengthen your faith and deepen your understanding of the degree to which he loves you. And as you stop and have the the clarity and observation to see, I wonder if the overwhelming faithfulness that Jesus has towards you, that supersedes even your faithfulness towards him, starts to feel a little bit overwhelming. Because inevitably, to encounter Jesus is to be overwhelmed by him. In an instant, or for a lifetime. The second thing that we see in this encounter is that it's transformational. We hear stories of wake-up call moments a lot. Maybe you've experienced what you would call a wake-up call moment in your life or seen somebody else, and the trajectory tends to be the same. You know, somebody's life is going in in one direction, and some event happens, and this has a reorienting impact on their life where they's, it's like they're a different person almost. All right, let me tell you a version of the wake-up call that none of us have ever heard. Somebody's recounting it, and they say, my life was headed in one direction, and suddenly this thing happened, and ever since then, I've continued living my life in the exact same way. That does not happen. And the reason it doesn't happen is when you really have one of these wake-up call-type moments, it's not just that you think different thoughts or do different things. It's as if you could not even entertain continuing to do the things you used to do because the fundamental orientation of your life is the root commitment has changed. And this takes a lot for this to happen, doesn't it? I mean, how often does somebody change political parties? Almost never. So what, what would have to happen for this type of life reorientation to take place? And to really understand what's going on with Saul, you gotta get a picture of, of the who he is. Beyond just this text, when, when you start to look at what's true of Saul, we find that he was born to a group called the Pharisees in a tribe of Benjamin. And what that meant is he had a fair degree of religious power. He was educated. He had opportunity. It also meant that he had wealth. So he had a fairly high standing in the religious Jewish world of the day. But he was also, we find, born in a city called Tarsus to parents who had the benefits of Roman citizenship which meant that Paul also had benefits of Roman citizenship. So he wasn't faced even with the same types of threats that a lot of his Jewish contemporaries were from the Roman government. So you put these together, it means that Paul has some degree of religious influence and some degree of political influence. And in order to maintain this type of standing, you absolutely had to be opposed to Jesus because he was seen as a religious threat. He was seen as a political threat, trying to overthrow the status quo. And all the followers, they believed, were trying to overthrow the status quo. And you can rest assured that Saul was, in fact, opposed to Jesus. Why is he going to Damascus in the first place? To kill Christians. And somehow, we find later this same week, presumably, people are recognizing the same guy who is coming to Damascus to try to kill Christians is now proclaiming the same message that he was putting people to death simply for believing. So this encounter is transformational. It's not just that Saul believes and says and thinks different things. It's that his fundamental life orientation is now completely different. How does this happen? We go back to the scene. I want you to pretend just for a second like we did not read this text. And I'm describing to you what's going to happen. Saul's on the road to Damascus. He's on the way to kill Christians. And suddenly, Jesus in his glorified, resurrected, victorious body now appears. And Saul hits the deck because he understands what is happening. He understands who he is. What would you expect Jesus to do? Now think about this. Jesus could put Saul to death in this moment and he would still be just as righteous. He would still be just as holy. He would actually still be just as loving. Nothing about the character of Jesus would be diminished at this point. He would be totally right to do it. But what does he say? Saul, rise. You know, I'm aware that that just because you're here this morning doesn't necessarily mean that you're totally bought in on Christianity. Um, Christian or non-Christian, my suspicion is for a lot of us, there are a lot of really challenging things when it comes to the message of believing this, the Bible, God's Word, Christianity. Part of what we want to do is honor and validate that a lot of those questions are probably really good questions. Questions that are worth asking. But alongside those questions that are good questions, what if we simply started here? That said the Jesus who we are describing, who welcomes our questions, who welcomes our investigation, has this type of response to this type of man. Who doesn't turn you away in the recognition of every bad thing that you've ever done, but invites you into his presence. if an encounter with Jesus really is transformational, the question we owe ourselves is, does my life bear the mark of somebody who has been transformed? We live in a really peculiar context in the South right now, and have for probably the past century or two, that I think is somewhat of an an anomaly in the history of the church. And the reason I think this is because There's a weird version of the cultural South where it can actually benefit you socially in many ways to be a Christian. But what can happen with this is often we can so closely acclimate to what the cultural norms are around us, we can fail to distinguish how that might differ from what the Bible calls us to do and be. And if we reflect on our lives and can't really discern any place where we live distinctly from those around us who are not Christians, we might have missed it. What might this look like for us? How might we pattern our lives in ways where we actually demonstrate that we have been transformed? Not because that's what saves us, but it does evidence the fact that we have been saved. This is the premise of the book of James. Faith without works is dead. It's not just Faith that justifies, says James. And what he's saying is not, you are saved by works. But he does say, the way you know is your life begins to evidence it. What might this look like for us? It might look like the way we pattern our weeks is distinct from those around us. I promise you, nobody enjoy, I promise you, nobody enjoys a good weekend more than I do. But what if instead of things that, that so often become patterns that we see around us, um, of things that are actually good things... Instead of prioritizing them as the ultimate thing in recreation or college football or things that actually are really good things, what if our weeks were patterned after the fact that Sunday is the pinnacle of the week according to God, that we might actually be preparing ourselves in some way for this distinct day, rather than the other six? That is countercultural. It might look like the way we spend our time and money being different. Um, that. That career is not the ultimate pursuit in our lives, as good as career is. That we see our money not as a way to escalate to the top, but actually something that's not even ours to begin with, that we're stewarding from God. That it leads us to use it with generosity. It might even look like the way we disagree. Not even what we disagree about, but the way that we disagree is distinct from others. I, I am not even for a second entertaining the idea that we should waver on a single thing that the Bible says. We are emphatic defenders of the truth of God. But my question is, when we meet somebody who disagrees with us about this or anything else, how do we operate, how do we treat that person? Can we recognize that maybe something they're saying is not true, maybe even that they are an enemy of God? while still treating them as an image-bearer that they are, by being able to articulate what they believe just as good as they do, and not diminishing them or writing them off, I think this might be the the place where Christians have to be countercultural in a way that is not common around us. Because what you begin to see is this is the exact same way that Jesus treats his enemies, with patience, with an invitation for them to be heard. Not so that you will encounter Jesus, but because you already have. An encounter with Jesus is transformational. Third, an encounter with Jesus ultimately is loving. We can sit here and we can talk about the thoughts that change that we have after we encounter Jesus, the ways that we begin to live differently, but ultimately, more than anything else, what we've got to see is that to encounter Jesus at its root is ultimately an encounter with the very embodiment of love. To really understand this, you have to look at the rest of Paul's story. Um, And God gives mention of this in the text that we read, that he's going to show Saul the type of suffering that he will endure. And I wonder if in that moment Saul really understood what that was going to entail. Because from this moment forward, all of the credentials that we just listed, all of the power and influence and status and wealth that Saul has, he trades in. For things like going in and out of house arrest, in and out of jail, the constant threat of persecution that will ultimately be the thing that leads to his death. And while all of this is going on, he will uh, ultimately go on to write 13 letters that become part of the canon of our New Testament, to go on to plant some two dozen churches, and to mentor and pastor and guide others who will go on to do the same. And in one of the letters that Paul writes to the church in Philippi, as he's sitting in jail, He says this, he says, I count all the gain that I had as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord. He says, for his sake I have suffered this loss of all things, and I count them, our translations say rubbish, that's actually somewhat of a softening form of what he says, in order that I might gain Christ and be united to him. Paul is saying, whatever gain I had, I gladly gave it up because of what I have now found, even as I'm sitting in prison. This uh, morning, I was texting my mom, uh, Mother's Day, sending pictures of uh, me and our almost two-year-old, and As I was doing so, uh, I was thinking about just the the type of mother that she's been and and the idea of motherhood really has taken a new dimension uh, for me with um, my wife now being a mother, an almost two-year-old, another one on the way. And I was reflecting this morning on the ways that my mom demonstrated, sometimes knowingly, sometimes unknowingly, this gracious, sacrificial love of Jesus within the context of our family. And one of the things that I started to think about was around 15 or so years ago, when her mom's health started to deteriorate. It started with a fall, um, and and really from there on out, it was sort of this perpetual revolving door of health issues and challenges for a very long period of time. Physical issues, um, which ultimately gave way to just a lot of um, cognitive challenges, strokes, and all these kinds of things that are just really hard to see. And my mom was always uh, really good and persistent, even though her mom lived out of town, of, of going to see her frequently. Sometimes sometimes all of us, sometimes her and my dad, sometimes just her, and she would go into the room to see her mom. Um, and if you've ever had to do this, you know that's a really challenging thing to do, because what you're seeing almost feels like a different person than the memories that you have from when you were a kid or from when you got married, or from when your own children were born. What you're seeing now is somebody who has endured a lot, who almost feels like a shell of the person that you want to remember. And to step into that room is a costly step. And in many ways, that cost is being carried by the person who chooses to enter it. But the thing about my mom is it wasn't just that she was willing to go into this room willing to endure that cost, she was actually eager to do it. Not because it was easy, not because it was fun, but she knew that that cost was required in order for her to be present with the one that she loved. Do you have room for a Jesus who on the way to the cross, betrayed by everybody who he came to save, marching forth towards the brutal crucifixion that he knows is awaiting Do you have room for a Jesus who thinks about Saul and thinks about how much he loves Saul despite the fact that Saul has a hand in this crucifixion? Do you have room for a Jesus who thinks about the fact that he cannot wait for Saul to be presented as holy and spotless and righteous even though Saul is going to go on to kill Christians? Do you have room for a Jesus who is going towards the cross delighting in the very notion? of Saul even though he's going to carry the cost of his own life and the full wrath of God do you have room for a Jesus who on the way to the cross thinks of you and how much he loves you and how eager he is to carry the cost of what it means to simply be in your presence for you to be righteous and spotless When we say that Jesus loves his people, we do not mean that Jesus just gets the warm fuzzies. We mean that Jesus does it in a costly way to show and to accomplish the eternal salvation of his people simply so he may delight in us. So that when we encounter him, we know this love firsthand. Because ultimately, an encounter with Jesus is, yes, overwhelming as we see his goodness and our sinfulness. It's transformational because we see a Jesus who calls us to rise and invites us towards him. And we see a Jesus who loves us enough to lay down his life for us. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you've loved us enough to do um, a same type of story in our life that we see uh, embodied in the life of Saul. Of this radical saving forgiving transformation where jesus switches places with us and the wrath that we deserve he takes for himself and the righteousness that was his is given to us equip us with this truth give us a sense of joy Uh, give us uh, a, a sense of longing to go out into the world to see the places where you promise to meet us by your spirit the places in your word where you speak these words to us over and over and over again not just for an instant, but for the rest of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.